15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's all about astronomy and space science. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host. Great to have your company once again. On this episode, uh, we're going to be looking at an asteroid that's been described as the fastest orbiting asteroid ever seen, or unseen as the case may be, but uh, they know it's out there. Uh, a space launch that only costs a few hundred dollars. NASA would be interested in this, and it was in Australia. And we're also going to look at a new kind of telescope that will rival Hubble, and it will be held aloft by a helium balloon the size of a football stadium. Can you imagine? That's a lot of blowing things up. Uh, plus some audience feedback and questions coming your way on this week's episode. And joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am well. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. This is the very last Space Nuts that will be recorded in Terry Hills, uh, where we've been living for the last 11 years because we're moving. <laughs> That's why there's cardboard boxes everywhere. Uh, and, and, and this is Fred's solution to lockdown. How do we get out of this place? We buy a new house and move. <laughs> yeah, it's right. a pretty expensive way of doing an outing, Fred. Um, it is. Um, and it only takes us about five miles as well. So uh, <laughs> it's not that big a move. Uh, Never mind. Yeah. Well, good luck with it. <clears throat> yes, I look forward to being able to show you around the new premises <laughs> perhaps next week. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, judging by all the boxes that you've... Um, oh, Got discreetly hidden behind yeah. you there. <laughs> I know it's it's, it's not, not fun. Moving's not no, fun. No, no, it's horrendous. No. Uh, <clears throat> well, we we continue to be locked down here, and it looks like it'll be extended again. We don't know for how long. Um, I'm hearing rumours that we might be locked down till the end of September, because our numbers aren't uh, declining in terms of new infections. So. That's a bit of a worry, uh, and yeah, the numbers in Sydney have been horrific. So we're um, we're sort of waiting patiently, or maybe not, uh, for some answers on uh, where we go to from here. But um, I know what the government is aiming to get to in terms of vaccination levels and and then uh, potential freedoms being returned. But uh, we're nowhere near that yet. Nope. So uh, <clears throat> we, we carry on, don't we? We do. That's right. Yes. Let's get down to business, Fred, and we're going to start off by talking about uh, an asteroid, and this one's uh, uh, got an, a lot of attention because it's uh, it's a bit speedy. It's speedy, all right. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the fastest orbiting asteroid ever discovered, uh, and it's been discovered using a telescope down in Chile that um, normally does quite different things. Um, this is uh, it's quite an interesting you know, project, the whole, the whole story. Um, there is a telescope similar in size to our um, uh, Anglo-Australian telescope here at uh, Siding Spring Observatory in northwestern New South Wales, which has a 3.9-metre diameter mirror. Uh, down in Chile, uh, operated at the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory. It's actually an outfit belonging to Noir Lab, which is the optical infrared, uh, uh, basically the, the, the National Optical Infrared Observatory in the USA. Uh, that is the Victor M. Blanco 4-metre telescope, and it's equipped with a camera. Um, I don't know how many pixels your 
phone cameras got, but this one, Andrew, is a 570 megapixel camera. So it's a very, very wide angle wow. uh, camera using CCDs, the charge couple devices that we use. And normally what it's looking for it, or looking at are distant clusters of galaxies uh, to uh, actually and nearby clusters, but, but all the massive ones, because they're looking... Um, basically to try and understand the physics of the universe. And that's why it's called the Dark Energy Camera or DECAM. Uh, so, so it's a great name. But once in a while, um, they they turn it on the solar system. And in this case, what was happening was mm. uh, scientists were using the camera to probe the twilight sky. And by that, I mean the time either just after the sun has set or just before the sun has risen. Um, because even though it's not perfectly dark then, what you might pick up are objects which in our line of sight are very close to the sun. And sure enough, what they found Ah. is an asteroid which rejoices in the name of 2021 PH27. A great name. I like it very much. Um, And and it is (laughs) the closest known asteroid to the sun. And what that means, of course, that the nearer you get uh, to, if you're in orbit around something, the nearer you get to it, the faster you have to go to stay in orbit. Uh, so um, this is whistling round at a speed which I haven't got a note of, I'm afraid, partly because it varies. Uh, it's in a very elongated orbit, um, as some asteroids are. Uh, and in fact, it crosses the orbits of both Mercury and Venus. Uh, so it's in this elliptical, elongated orbit, uh, but actually its closest point to the sun is uh, 20 million kilometres. That's about 12 million miles, uh, which is you know 13% of the distance to from the sun to the Earth. Uh, it's it's really you know it's almost shaving the mm. the upper layers of the sun as it as it um, makes that innermost passage uh, during its orbit. So a really an extraordinary discovery and one that um, is of interest for further study because uh, if you've got something that goes that close to the sun, it's feeling an enormous gravitational pull. And so it's a great way of doing yet more tests of Einstein's general theory of relativity because that uh, that becomes more noticeable. You know, its effect be- effects become more noticeable in strong gravitational fields. But also, it means uh, that this thing is feeling an enormous tide. And by a tide, what what astronomers mean is the difference in the pull uh, of uh, the parent object, in this case the sun, on one side as compared with the other. That's what raises the tides on Earth. It's the, the, the pull of the moon um, um, being different on one side of the Earth from what it is on the other. And that's the, the effect of, that's the tidal effect. And with an asteroid that close to the sun, um, it, what it's doing is giving you some sense of how strong the asteroid is because it's still intact, uh, whereas tidal forces are trying to pull it to pieces, basically. And so you've got this nice balance between the, um, the you know, what the tidal forces are mm. uh, and and the, the structure of the asteroid. So a really interesting discovery. Absolutely. Uh, I, I've just been uh, trying to um, get some data on it. Its orbital period is 0.31 of a year. So what's that, about four months? Uh, indeed, around? that's correct, Yes. So four uh, months to do an orbit of the sun. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty schmick. It's schmick, is that? Yeah. Um, it's um, 
its size is not yet known, I think. It's probably quite small because it would be pretty faint. Uh, Yes, um, as you said, 113-day orbital period. Uh, I don't think there's an estimate yet of its size. Uh, Well, I've just um, gone to the the great uh, knower of all things, Wikipedia, (laughs) and they've already got an article in there about it. And (laughs) they say, with an absolute magnitude of 17.7, the asteroid is expected to be larger than one kilometre in diameter. There you go. So So, that makes sense, yes. Yeah, but being sort of small and faint, as asteroids tend to be, was it pure luck that they found it? Um, would, would, or would they have been really looking in the right place at the right time, hoping to find something? Yeah, I think, I think what I, my guess is uh, that what happened was uh, that the astronomers essentially uh, were just using their twilight time of, of the of the night, pro- pro- probably at the beginning of the night, to s- check that everything's working all right and just to have a look, because um, mm. the, the the camera to do its job, looking at clusters of galaxies, that dark energy camera, um, you really need dark time. That's to say, the time when the sun's light is not affecting the sky at all, which means after the end of astronomical twilight, which means when the sun is more than 18 degrees below the horizon. So um, what they might well have been doing is just using the time between sunset and twilight to have a look in the vicinity of the sun and see what turns up. And sure enough, something did turn up, which is brilliant. They, they, sure they're they looking, yeah. I, I, you know, these, these guys are not, they're not amateurs. They're, I mean, and, and don't use that term disparagingly, but they are not uh, beginners. They're using... Um, uh, they're, they're using the, what time they can to, to to suss out what might be around. It's a great way to to use a telescope. Yeah, and um, apparently was discovered by astronomer Scott Shepard. And yes. according to this article, the observations were conducted at twilight to search for undiscovered minor planets situated at low uh, elongations from the sun. Yeah. So so that that uh, actually. Undoes what I just said because uh, <laughs> Scott Shepard is an asteroid hunter, uh, so you, you know he's on the team and they're specifically looking for near near sun asteroids. So um, right. forget all that. What I just said, uh, total speculation. Enough. And um, I mean, uh, the the reason why I mentioned that is that we've done the same sort of thing. You know, when I've been observing st- uh, stars and galaxies with the surveys that I've been involved with, with a big telescope, the Anglo-Australian telescope, uh, the twilight time, it's when you, you do your calibration exposures and things of that sort, but you're, you're kind mm. of waiting for darkness and you've got this large telescope. Uh, why not try and find something unexpected with it? That's kind yes, of what happens. Indeed. Yeah. And thus wraps up the Let's Embarrass Fred segment for another week. Right. Uh, we, have, we do have one of those every week, which is fine. We uh, do. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the reference to a minor planet is interesting. Why, why do they call ah, it that? Because that's the technical term for an asteroid. Um, oh. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, it's what uh, asteroid was a term introduced by William Herschel back in the early 19th century. But astronomers have always regarded it as a slang word, almost. I mean, it's now Mm. not so. Uh, But um, throughout uh, much of my career, Andrew, um, we talked about minor planets. Uh, And in fact, um, my master's thesis, its title is Practical Techniques for the Determination of 
uh, minor planet orbits. So there you go. Uh, even back in the 1960s, it was uh, it was still the official term. But now asteroid has become much more uh, u- widely used, and and it's it's kind of clouded slightly because we now have dwarf planets as well. Um, so uh, yeah. we, we we talk in terms of planets, dwarf planets, asteroids, which are rocky, comets, which are icy. Uh, it's uh, it, the terminology has changed, but um, I, you can see from this article that yes, they're still called minor planets by the you know by the aficionados, by the experts, the, by, the, by the asteroid hunters or minor yeah. planet hunters. Yeah. Minor planet hunters. That's right. So, so this one's pretty close to the sun, and it's whizzing around very very quickly. Do we know how many of them might be in that vicinity in these yeah. situations? That's exactly the question that astronomers ask when they discover something like that. So you're right on the money there, Andrew. Uh, mm. This is praise praise the Andrew segment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the Andrew just got lucky with that question yeah. segment. Yeah, that's right. And um, the thinking is there are probably quite a lot of them. Um, uh, perhaps more to the point is where did this thing come from? And there's a yeah. speculation that it could be a captured... Uh, interstellar asteroid um you know uh, interstellar asteroids are among your favorite classes of objects thanks to Oumuamua, yes, um yeah. and um which was a genuine interstellar asteroid but the thinking is that this might have been an interstellar asteroid uh, that has got captured either by the gravity of mercury or venus um mm. and uh, what leads to that conclusion is its its orbit is quite inclined to the plane of the the disk of the solar system, it's I think it's thirty one degrees or thereabouts, if I remember rightly. I did look at it, uh, so it's got a tilted orbit, which suggests it might have come in at a funny angle, uh, and it, it is even possible that it might be the remnants of a comet. You know, with with all the gas uh, boiled off because it's so close to the sun, and what you've got is this yeah. loosely bound dusty object. Um, which is in a is a comet-like orbit, uh, although it's an unusual one because it's so small. Um, but the, you know, it must it can't be that loosely bound, or else it would have fallen to bits by the, the gravity of the sun. So, yeah, mm. really interesting uh, stuff. Inclination is thirty one point six six two degrees. Yeah, yeah, so you're you pretty <laughs> pretty space. So he's redeemed himself. Thank there you. you Thank you. Yeah. That's good to know. Um, what might be the fate of it? Yeah, um, that's another good question. Uh, Possibly in the end, a collision with Mercury or Venus or even perhaps being captured. Uh, Wouldn't it be great if in a few million years Venus has a moon uh, in in the shape of 2021 pH 27? That would be fantastic stuff. Anything's possible. Anything's Anything's possible. possible. All right. Uh, Fascinating discovery and, uh, yeah, um, and, and... Maybe even uh, some some more uh, work can be done on Einstein's theory of general relativity as a consequence of the discovery, which I I think is also very exciting. So you never know what might turn up out there. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Thanks for listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Before we get back to it, uh, let me tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. I've been using them for quite a while now, and I'm impressed. Uh, I'm not just talking about their service. I'm very impressed by their reliability and and their speed. Uh, There are times when connecting to NordVPN is actually faster than my regular internet service provider connection, which I know is a big claim, but it's, it's an absolute fact. And of course, there are lots and lots of benefits with a VPN service such as Nord. 
these days you want a, a service that keeps you safe from hackers, especially when you're um, out in the public using public Wi-Fi services, uh, which I've quite often done in the past, not right now because of lockdown, but again in the future. And for those who listen outside of Australia uh, that aren't locked down, travel is opening up again and you may spend a lot of time at an airport and you might be using your smartphone and log into the free Wi-Fi service. Well, if you do that, that's fine, except that you are also exposed to hackers and uh, they do spend a fair bit of time and effort hanging around airports trying to hack into people's systems. NordVPN uh, can certainly stop that from happening because you can put it on your mobile device. In fact, you can put it on six devices at the same time, uh, your cell phone, your tablet, your home PC, your laptop, even your smart TV. Uh, you can put NordVPN on all of those and use uh, the service on six things simultaneously. And that is really great protection. Uh, I've got it on all my devices. I'm surrounded by devices at the moment. One, two, three, four. I've got four things in here and they've all got NordVPN on them. Uh, another great advantage is streaming. Uh, Geo-blocking is so common these days and I've been caught, frustratingly so, trying to watch a TV on a US service and uh, I get a message to say, I don't have access because I'm in Australia. Well, now I can just log on to a Nord server in the United States problem solved. It's really so simple and fast. Uh, and they've also got a, a smart system so you don't have to pick a server for yourself. They'll pick the fastest and most uh, convenient one and just bam, connect you straight away. Now, if you'd like to take advantage of NordVPN, uh, we can help because we have a, a special URL set up and a special deal for Space Nuts listeners. Uh, just log on to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and you'll get a two-year package with an extra four months thrown in for free. That's a damn good deal. Two years and four months of cyber protection with the best in the business, NordVPN. Check it out today and reap the benefits of being part of the Space Nuts family. Go to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. That's nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and sign up for your future security. Now let's get back to Space Nuts. Roger, you're allowed to turn here also. Space Nuts. Hello again to our patrons. These are the people that uh, put a few dollars into the Space Nuts podcast uh, every month uh, and they do it um, voluntarily. We don't hold a gun to their heads or a laser or whatever it is. Uh, we, uh, but we do appreciate you very much uh, for supporting Space Nuts and if you'd like to learn more about doing that, you can jump on our website and there's a support Space Nuts button where you can learn about the packages that are available and the options for supporting Space Nuts and you can check out the Space Nuts shop while you're there. Oh, by the way, for those of you watching on YouTube, guess what turned up for me this week? How about that? It's it's the Space Nuts mug with the Space Nuts logo on it. So um, I think there's one headed your way, Fred, so it should... Hopefully it'll turn up before you move. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, check it all out at spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Now, Fred, let's uh, move on to our next topic. It's a, it's a double bunger because they're both kind of related and involve balloons. Uh, this um, first half of this segment looks at uh, some work at La Trobe University in Victoria in Australia where they've done a space launch and it only cost a few hundred dollars. 
Yeah, isn't that great? Um, yeah. La Trobe University has a, um, a a team which is called the High Altitude Advanced Materials and Engineering Research Team, or HAMA, which I like. It's, a, it's HAMA, actually, H-A-H-A-A-M-E-R. That's a nice acronym. Um, and this team uh, has invested, yes, a few hundred dollars, uh, probably more, because they've got 24 of these di- of these balloon-launched missions planned over the next few wow. years. And the, the very first one, uh, last week, uh, basically uh, celebrated the success of their first launch. Um, and, you know, the, the, the balloons are, in, in many ways, they're an unexploited... Uh, technology for high altitude research, whether that's looking out into space or looking down mm. at the Earth's surface. Um, I know. So you remember when Manny and I used to take tours up to the far northern Arctic uh, in Sweden? There is a place called Esrange. It's the uh, Swedish Space Research uh, Institute. That's their launch site, and uh, they not only launch rockets there, but they also have a very strong balloon program. And I got quite keen wow. on that at the time when we were going up there because it's such a cheap way of getting to heights of 30, 40 kilometers, uh, maybe more, where you, when you're above you know, almost all of the Earth's atmosphere, not all of it, or else the balloon would come down. Uh, but you're, yeah, you're above much of the Earth's atmosphere. And you can do it for budgets which as uh, the, the La Trobe University team uh, here in Australia have described as a few hundred dollars. Um, they, the interesting thing about balloon flights, of course, is that they, uh, the balloon actually is carried by high-altitude jet streams. So the, the balloons tend to fly around the Earth. We've seen examples of that. Uh, in fact, human uh, Occupied balloons have flown all the way around the Earth on the jet stream. So you, you've kind of got to be careful where you launch them and where where it comes down. And um, I'm sure I read uh, somewhere with the the the, the, the Latrobe launch um, that they are yeah that's right they're tracking the landing and I don't know whether it's landed yet. Uh, it may have touched down already. Um, but uh, the the quote I read is that they're expecting it to end up between Bendigo, Shepparton, and Wodonga, and uh, the 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 leading the leader of the team uh, said that the launch pad spot was chosen to make sure the balloon didn't land in New South Wales because New South Wales is in strict lockdown, and so. Yeah, they don't want the balloon to fly into New South Wales and then come down, and then they, they get told at the border that we can't chase the balloon, he said. They're cutting it fine if it comes down at Shepparton. Yeah, that's. I, I actually have to say I'm not that um, f- familiar with the, the geography of that part of Victoria, but Wodonga's right mm. on the border, isn't it? Um, that's, yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's all kind of in that little cluster there. Yeah, so uh, we'll have to see what happens with that. And the other thing I liked yeah. about this story, and it, it, all this also ties in with the, the Ar- Ar- Arctic expeditions, um, they, the, the, the main reason for this first test flight, uh, and this is a, an, another quote um, from Professor James Maxwell, what a great name in science, who's part of the La Trobe University team. Uh, the, yeah. the, the, the main reason for this test flight 
was to see how many hand warmers the balloon needs to keep the batteries warm. Because uh, the lithium <laughs> batteries, if they get cold, they just die. Uh, and they're using those chemical hand warmers. Now, we use those quite often up in the Arctic. You stick one in your glove, you open them up, stick it in your glove, and it stays warm for about seven hours or something. Um, and yeah. it, so the, the test flight's all about how many hand warmers you need uh, to keep the balloon warm in the future, which is brilliant stuff. What lo- you know, lovely experimentation uh, there and um, doing it on a shoestring budget. Yeah, and that's where um, the extra hundreds of dollars came into well, the hand warmers. <laughs> the hand warmers. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Mm. Yeah. And and Shepparton is very close to the New South Wales border. Okay, uh, yeah. And, and Wodonga shares the border You're with right Albury, which yes, is in New right. South Wales. So, yeah, yeah. They, they've got a tight window, Yeah, pretty tight window. Of course, the, the thing's got uh, high-definition cameras on it and GPS locators, so yeah. they'll know where to find it. And it uh, obviously has you know, been up there to take footage. Uh, I don't know which. I don't know particularly what they wanted to look at. I guess it just depends on which way it spins and dangles. Yeah, I think. I think at this stage that. Well, I, I don't know. I shouldn't. You know, um, I shouldn't speculate again because I've already got into trouble <laughs> for that once today. Um, uh, but you know, if I was launching a balloon like that for the first time, I'd just take what came from yep. the camera, um, and uh, you know the the. the uh, the thing is, the technology is, uh, exists already to, to accurately point cameras for astronomy uh, from balloon-mounted platforms. So it's, uh, it, it, it really is, uh, I think, a big advance. And um, maybe that's the segue into the other half of this, uh, of this uh, segment, Andrew. Absolutely is. This is uh, a story out of um, Toronto. Yep. Uh, and this is uh, this is a, a, a huge scale compared to what we've just been talking about. This is this is sending uh, an observatory uh, aloft on a balloon the size of a football stadium. I mean, <laughs> this is deadly serious stuff. Probably costs a bit more than a couple hundred bucks. It, it, it will, but it'll still be cheaper than sending up a. A, a spacecraft, uh, you know, on a rocket to put it into orbit, and what we're talking mm. about is the super bit. Uh, and I think the BIT part of the name is Balloon Born Imaging Telescope. So there's two Bs there, but never mind. Uh, the Balloon Born Imaging Telescope, the super bit, uh, and that's as you said, been announced uh, with um, uh, actually with collaboration from Princeton University, Toronto University, and the University of Durham in the UK. I used to work very closely with uh, scientists at the University of Durham uh, when I was building instruments for uh, the observatories in La Palma. You know, that's another story. So what they're doing is, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've teamed up with the Canadian Space Agency, which is one of the members, of course, of the um, of the International Space Station, one of the member agencies, and an outfit called NASA, uh, of which you may have heard, uh, uh, to, uh, to, yep. to, to build this new sort of telescope. And, and the, as you said, the football stadium-sized balloon, of course, it's only football stadium-sized when it's at altitude because these things... Uh, when they Expand. when they're launched, yeah, they just look like a strange empty bag with a bit of a, a puff at one end that takes it up up uh, into the atmosphere. But as the pressure outside reduces, the the, the balloon swells. So yep, it goes uh, to be the size of a football stadium, and actually has on board a camera. Um, now I think it's uh, it's a half meter diameter telescope that, that that feeds the camera 
Um, that's considerably smaller than the Hubble, but at 40 kilometers altitude, which is where this thing will operate, uh, it has the same high resolution or similar high resolution. It won't be quite the same, but it'll, it'll be very similar to the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and, you know, the estimated cost for the Hubble Space Telescope so far is in the region of $10 billion. And this is going to be done once again for budgets which are measured in thousands of dollars rather than even millions, I think. Um, actually, I, 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 I should, I'll correct that because it's not, it's more than a million. It's about $5 million, uh, US dollars uh, is the budget, but it's still um, much better than $5 billion, which would be, uh, you know, sort of a Hubble scale instrument. So this is really very interesting. Um, and one of the, one of the aspects of this that's, that's uh, I, I think, very advantageous is this thing comes back to earth. So you can, you can, tweak the design you can put right anything that's gone wrong um and you've you know you basically uh, can can carry out repairs or whatever because it could, because you do get it back whereas with spacecraft everything has to have redundancy built into it so that you you, you know that the, there isn't a showstopper uh, and that redundancy is very expensive i mean think of the james oh Webb yes i just was which, which yeah once once it's out yeah, there it's yeah. out there and if something's wrong it's absolutely out there yeah there's no way mm. a million and, and of a course we're meters away if... we remember hubble had some issues early on and yep. they had to do a space shuttle mission to fix it which that's um, correct they did and just uh, a bit of sticky did, tape indeed. did the job there and, and Hubble's universal. altitude, <laughs> it was optical sticky tape, but that's yeah, effectively what that's it right. was, yeah. Um, Hubble's orbit, I think, is, if I remember rightly, is about 600 kilometres or maybe 700 kilometres, which is unattainable with um, present-day human spacecraft. Mm. Uh, the, the, the shuttle could do that, but um, I, I'm not actually sure. I might be wrong there because maybe Crew Dragon can go to those altitudes and when it flies, perhaps Starliner might be able to as yeah. well. But um, my impression is that they're meant for lower Earth orbits than that. And how long a period will this thing stay aloft? If you know, if they can retrieve it, and obviously with a balloon, it's not going to stay up there forever, but uh, are they expecting it to be able to do longitudinal missions, if you like? Yeah. Yes, I think so. Um, I, I, you know, I think um, I, I'm not really sure of the details of what they're planning with this, but my guess is that it will be aloft for long periods, um, and and you know maybe a week or something like that would be a long period in this case, mm. or maybe even longer. Uh, but what they're planning to do is. Um, charge up the batteries while it's in daylight and then use the um, you know the energy that uh, that's been stored in in the batteries to to make the observations during the night uh i can't find a, a note of what a typical uh, mission time might be um it's it it's uh, so okay uh, here's here's a bit of text that really relates to this um because there's this the this technology now developed by NASA, and this is the breakthrough here, Andrew, uh, that lets the helium stay within the balloon for months. Oh, uh, wow. So um, NASA has basically 
develop what they're calling super pressure balloons, and that's where the super bit comes from, uh, the super bit of super bit. Uh, uh, it, they can contain helium for a long period of time because that's been the limit. Um, that helium, uh, like hydrogen, tends to find its way out of balloons. You, you know that yourself. If you buy a, a party balloon, yeah. uh, it only stays up for a day or two. Yeah. But with this, uh, with this new, you know, new um, newly developed technology, so we might expect um, there to be several circumnavigations of the globe. That's the basically the time that the the, the sort of thing they're talking about. So yeah, fabulous stuff. Wonderful, wonderful indeed. Yeah, and um, all for a small percentage of the cost of sending something like the James Webb or Hubble yeah, into space. Exactly. So could provide uh, a, a new opportunity, and um, you know, might change the way we do things in the future to to a certain degree. Anyway, this is uh, the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. And thanks for joining us. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the program. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson talking uh, astronomy and space science. And Fred, we're uh, we're going to uh, take a, a couple of questions. Uh, although uh, one of them is probably big enough to be an entire segment. In t- but uh, we, we will get to that. Um, but our first question comes from um, one of the coldest places in Australia. Hello, I'm from Hobart in Tasmania, and I've been listening to podcasts for about a month now, and I've really been enjoying it. So anyway, to my question, I've heard about the possibilities of harnessing the abundance of hydrogen in the atmosphere of Jupiter to refine into fuel. Would it be possible to capture the hydrogen when you're aerobraking through the atmosphere, using it to correct your orbit once you get to the highest point, essentially resulting in a free orbit? I was thinking about this a while ago and wanted to test that in Kerbal Space Program, but unfortunately you can't suck stuff in from the atmosphere of Joule in the game, Joule being the uh, green equivalent of Jupiter and KSP. But anyway, yeah, thanks. Okay. Um, capturing hydrogen during Jupiter orbit, is that what uh, I heard? So, so yeah, so aerobraking, um, which yep. is using an atmosphere to... Uh, essentially to slow down the motion of a spacecraft. Uh, it's used um, in uh, Earth orbit um, considerably. That's what uh, allows, you know, human capsules or the space shuttle to, to get back to the surface of the Earth. Um, it, it's, a, it's a neat trick, Andrew, because um, if you think about it, if you try to use rocket braking uh, to, to bring back your your spacecraft you'd need nearly as big a rocket as you got to launch it uh although of course the the, the fuel is gone but and, and so aero braking is the trick it's the it's the the neat way to uh re-enter an atmosphere or enter an atmosphere of a, of a planet and aero braking's been used on mars as well many times so um using it on jupiter uh it it's uh, something that you could use to modify the orbit of a spacecraft to put it into orbit around Jupiter rather than try and land on Jupiter because there's no known surface at uh, uh, the base of Jupiter's atmosphere. Uh, and whether you could actually collect hydrogen on the way down is a really interesting su- suggestion uh, because mm. the atmosphere, yes, there's a lot, there is a lot of hydrogen in Jupiter's atmosphere. Um, aerobraking tends to be a fairly hot sort of process because you've got 
the heat, the, the, the frictional heat, um, which is actually not caused by friction. It's caused by the compression of the atmosphere in front of the spacecraft. There's a lot of misinformation about that, which I've been guilty of spreading myself uh, many times. But, you know, you, 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 you've got to dissipate the heat somehow. And that means... Um, in the case of the shuttle, it was heat-resistant tiles, um, which essentially dissipated the heat on capsules like the Orion capsule, uh, which is being developed by NASA, and the um, SpaceX Crew Dragon. It's a thing called an ablative shield. It's a it's a, a resin, a plastic resin that burns away to dissipate the heat. It, 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 yeah. or it evaporates and carries away the heat. Um, so uh, whether you can collect hydrogen under circumstances like that is a, r- a really interesting prospect. There will be some fascinating physics involved, which will well be on me uh, at the moment. Uh, but um, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of our uh, our listener. But um, yeah, it's a great idea. And um, I think could be built into space games, if not if not reality. Mm. Oh, <laughs> could, could do. Yeah. Probably a dumb question, um, but if if you are aero braking and creating that 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 compression which builds up heat in a hydrogen environment, wouldn't that cause an explosion yeah, I, or I, some kind I, of? I, I um, wondered if you'd ask that because it crossed my mind as well. So I'm glad you did. <laughs> and the answer is, yeah, um, that you would need oxygen to cause an explosion. Oh, of um, course, and so so you don't have it in. Jupiter's no, atmosphere. no. It's probably a bit, but not enough. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. All right, thanks for the question. Sorry we don't know your name, but uh, we appreciate yeah, you um, join, joining the ranks of the Space Nuts fraternity. Greatly appreciate it. Okay, to our next question, and again, I, I they say their name, but I just can't catch it, but um, it it's all becomes self-evident. It's a, it's a fairly long question, but uh, it, it creates an interesting discussion that uh, we we do we do love this subject so here we go yeah hi my name is Stanton Hertzler and I'm calling you from St. Paul in Minnesota in the US and I wanted to get back to you on the where is the goo or spreading the goo question that you had in other words does life exist elsewhere is it intelligent life is it just a bunch of bacterial smudge now I'm a chemist I'm a pretty dogmatic chemist and my specialty uh, is self-assembly. That is how non-bonded molecules come together and form organized structures. Okay, so we have uh, Dr. Betel Kretschmer, and she has one opinion. And I'll point out that we have an example of evolution right now over a period of two years, and that's the COVID vaccine. It's already mutated several times. And yeah, its behavior has also changed and how it interacts with us. And then we have evolution over the period of many millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. And I've, I wouldn't be surprised if a COVID vaccine, if a COVID virus becomes intelligent over that period. In other words, you start small on the basis of molecules or, vi- or rather viruses and bacteria, and you end up with intelligent life. It's just a logical, physical principle. Okay, you'll remember the Dunning-Kroger saying, originally started with Shakespeare, and that says that everyone who thinks they're an expert is actually a fool. 
and everyone who's humble and modest and says, I don't know what's going on, and actually has a respected and well-thought-out opinion. So you can take your choices to what I'm saying here and whether it has any validity. Now, there's another question I had as a chemist, again, as a dogmatic chemist, and that relates to what constitutes life and whether life here is chemically possible someplace else. Take, for example, uh, the moon Titan, which is notably colder than Earth. So that means that chemical reactions which occur on Earth will not occur on Titan. And that means that you're going to have a totally different regime of stability. Molecules that would fall apart on Earth are stable on Titan. They could form the basis of self-organization and hence life, albeit, uh, as the saying goes, not life as we know it here. And on the other side of the coin, say imagine you've got a very hot place, say not like Venus, but someplace it's hot, uh, you're going to have reactions that uh, won't occur here on Earth, but will on that hot planet. And that would give you, conversely, a different form of life, which is more based and, and more in tune with the temperature elsewhere, as well as other chemical, uh, chemical principles, whether you have an acid or a base and how much metal ions you have, things like that. Anyway, I really appreciate your show. It's great to wake up and get your brain going with. Uh, you can count me as someone who will never miss uh, one broadcast. It's much more thought-provoking than listening to the stupid news nowadays. So, thanks. And I hope you have a second to put some of my thoughts in your broadcast. Uh, well, we've put all your thoughts into our um, <laughs> into our podcast. But uh, thanks for bringing up uh, so many angles on a topic that uh, we do regularly focus on, and that is uh, life uh, beyond Earth. Uh, now, th th that question, uh, spreading the goo, came from um, something Rusty in Donnybrook uh, brought up a few weeks ago about seeding the universe with life and whether or not we should do it and whether or not it would work. And this this is um, sort of um, adding adding to that uh, that theory, uh, and and he brought up um, COVID or coronavirus uh, as um, something that if it had time to evolve would become intelligent. That's a that's an interesting thought. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the the the, uh, um, the debate is, I think, ongoing in the world of um, biochemistry. Is a virus life, uh, but mm. it clearly evolves, um, and it's, uh, it, it does need a host. But it's in that regard, it's self-sustaining and self-replicating. It it fits one definition of life, um, and the, but the question of whether you give something like that, or, or okay, let's assume that you've you've got some organization of molecules that. Um, that generates something like DNA and and eventually generates perhaps um, microorganisms like bacteria. Um, the question of whether that will evolve inevitably, if you leave it long enough, into an intelligent species is is a really vexed one, I think, in the world of astrobiology. Uh, because 40 years ago, in fact, longer, let's say 60 years ago, when um, when Frank Drake first proposed the Drake equation. 
and uh, put numbers in. Uh, it, at that time, it was assumed that uh, any living organism of the most humble kind would eventually evolve inevitably into something with intelligence. And that view is not yeah. shared today. Um, there's oh. certainly uh, a, a common strand that says the, the, the step to get from a single-celled organism to a multi-celled organism is such uh, an energy-hungry step that it it would only happen under certain circumstances, and so that um, you know that's why I think a lot of astrobiologists think that microbial life might be common throughout the universe, and yeah, I hope we find it soon if that's the case. But that um, higher mm. order life, and not just not just intelligent life, but things like plants and you know pretty rudimentary animals, uh, might not have made it because of this this huge step there is to get to overcome uh, in order to uh, to turn life into into a, a single celled organism organism into multi celled organisms so uh, yeah a really interesting mm. argument which doesn't have an answer really because we 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 won't know um whether there's intelligent life or advanced life out there until we find it um and um, the thing is, if we don't find it, we'll never know that it's not there because we're, there's so many places to look. Um, the, the other oh, part of the question, though, or the, the comment, is a really good one and I think really interesting in that uh, chemistry is is driven very much by temperature uh, and the, you get different, completely different reactions at different temperatures. Um, and I think those points are very, very well made in, in the... Uh, comment that you've just played uh and and i think mm. however leaping to the defense of the astrobiology community i think they take that on board uh those people who look at the prospects for living organisms elsewhere in the universe i mean uh, certainly uh you know the idea of living organisms on titan that use uh ethane and methane uh, as their working fluid or ethane and methane methane depending on how you pronounce it um uh, hydrocarbons in other words uh, the yep. same sort of hydrocarbons that we find in natural gas on earth um that's uh, that would be a completely different chemistry it's taking place at minus 200 degrees celsius uh the reactions uh, that are common on earth perhaps wouldn't occur down at those temperatures uh, but i think the astrobiologists have looked at that they've Try to figure out what these things might breathe and what they might eat, uh, and um, and what, what organisms they might represent. And I, I haven't seen anybody writing about it, but it, mm. it also occurs to me that maybe you could get at the opposite end of the spectrum. You could get living organisms that have iron as their working fluid, uh, because they're at temperatures where iron is molten. Um, that might put a whole different kettle of fish on the biochemistry of those, because iron is a metal, of course, uh, and uh, you know has a different chemical property from from the other things that we've talked about so really interesting thoughts there and a great um, question if that's what it is but uh, i think it's more a comment which is very welcome we welcome comments of any kind yes indeed so thank yeah, you yeah appreciate it and and it's always thought provoking to consider life as we know it may not actually be life as yeah. it is elsewhere if, if yeah. it's out there it it could be so so very different to anything we could imagine. And we've talked in the past about what life uh, would be like under different kinds of stars. Uh, we take for granted the environment we live in, the trees are green, the sky is blue, et cetera, et cetera. 
But, um, you know, if you're uh, orbiting um, a life-bearing planet uh, on a, um, yeah. a blue giant, yeah. Yeah. wouldn't be the same. It'd yeah. be a completely different um, uh, set of circumstances and every, everything would change. Uh, and, and even the colour of the trees, things like that. It's, um, it's, it really gets your mind going. I love it. I, I really do. And I, I hope um, they, uh, they sort things out on Perseverance and it learns how to dig a hole and we can get some dirt. That <laughs> yeah. might show that there was once or may still be some kind of mi- microbial life on Mars. Who knows? Well, we hope to know very soon. That's, that's the plan indeed. Uh, that brings us to the end of another show. Fred, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Uh, and um, I look forward to talking to you next week under quite different surroundings, I hope, anyway. <laughs> yes, yes. Can't, can't wait to see the new digs. No, me neither. <laughs> Good on you, Fred. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And don't forget, if you'd like to get in touch with us, go to our website. There's a uh, uh, an AMA tab up the top where you can send us an email or you can just click the little button on the right to send us a voice message or a question, whatever you like. It's spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. That's where you'll find us. Thanks again for listening. It's been great fun and we look forward to catching you on the very next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.